We are going to talk about a case study and transformation, and I want to tell you why I'm doing it. I have, uh, I'll be 43 years old as a Christian in a few months, and I will tell you that what I would have perceived for the next four decades is very different than the four decades gave me. And this is true with just about every Christian. I have been, even two weeks ago, I was at a celebration of life for someone who passed away, about 600 people in the room, and I knew these people. This was in Indianapolis. I used to lead that church, and a lot of Chicago people were there. And I saw people that have had the loss of life of their children or their spouse or bankruptcy or they got in trouble for taking a stand and lost their job and and uh, mental illness in the families and just things didn't go as they would have imagined. And, you know, someone recently uh, defined spirituality as... How we respond to a situation we would have never imagined. And of course, we can look at Joseph, and we can look at Job, and there are other people that we can look at in scriptures. We go, okay, they, they stayed with the Lord, they processed it, they got a new ending, and they become success stories for us. But this is an overlooked story. This is a story where somebody uh, committed the worst offense you could imagine in the Old Testament. Consider one of the biggest bloopers of all time. But first of all, I want to start with the monarch butterfly. The, uh, the butterfly is the thing that shows up, this particular butterfly is the one that shows up the most on a Google search on the Greek word metamorphosis, which we see twice in the New Testament, Romans 12.2 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. It means transformation. And the, the butterfly is a great uh, illustration for uh, three phases. That can be maybe a metaphor for phases in our uh, journey over time. There's this like this original identity, you know. Um, and we're going to look at Aaron as our case study. There's original Aaron. Then there's Aaron who really, really went down the wrong path. And then there's the emerging Aaron. And in the case with the monarch butterfly, why it's so powerful as a metaphor is as a caterpillar, which is a muncher, it eats a lot really fast, it's a glutton, then it slows down, then it goes through a period that some people call the goo period, especially if they're a teacher's teaching elementary students, where it starts to break down with these enzymes and almost removes any evidence of life and becomes just goo. And then for about eight days, that goo is rewired through what some scientists call imaginal cells to a new identity, which, of course, becomes the butterfly. What's interesting, though, and quite powerful to me, is that the... Uh, there's these imaginal cells help the butterfly maybe start out in Canada or northern U.S., go all the way down to Mexico, and somewhere along the line, the cycle happens again. And then returning from Mexico in a second generation or third generation, these butterflies will go sometimes back to the very same orchard or even tree. 
that their parents or grandparents started from. So these cells help rewire for what was ultimately intended to be the, the beautiful creature, but also helps it get home. And so our imaginal cells are the identity of God, who we were created to be in his image. But sometimes we get all messed up and we're not reflecting his image. But we can come back. And that's what we're going to do. Is We're going to look at an example of Aaron who did make a comeback. Now, I will assume, for sake of time, that all of us or most of us have read the Exodus story, especially you know, the prince of Egypt, you know, coming out of uh, Egypt and going to the promised land up till uh, Exodus 18 with the Ten Commandments and all that. And maybe know a little bit about the story, story of a plague where Aaron was very central figure out of number 16. But if not, I'll try to summarize the story as we go along. So the early identity of Aaron was he was the press secretary for Moses. He was the speaker. Moses kind of irritated the Lord because he wouldn't speak. And so, okay, you got your brother, you know. And uh, it says in verse 14 of Exodus 4, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He will speak to the people for you. Now, Moses was 80. Aaron was 83. And so... So the older brother steps in, and then in Exodus uh, 6, verse 26, it was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. And, uh, and so his status, Aaron's status, is pretty impressive at this point, and he gets a credit in this Exodus story. And then things kind of go in a, in a new course here real shortly, but he eventually gets to be called a prophet in chapter 7, uh, he uh, says, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. So that's kind of, you know, the, uh, the beginning for Aaron. And then we get to the goo period. And this is where, uh, this is considered by a lot of Bible readers the biggest blunder of the Old Testament. It's the golden calf incident is what we call it. And so we're going to take a look at it and break it down a little bit. So we see that, uh, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your golden earrings that your wives, your sons, and daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had made and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and pronounced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Well, it wasn't long before word got to Moses, to the Lord. They could actually hear the partying that was going on. And so, <coughs> one of the reasons this story is powerful to me is 
I led a very big blunder for the church in Chicago. And I had a period from a, there was a day that I marked the beginning of the blunder and a season of darkness, like a dark night of the soul. There was nobody to blame but me. It was of my doing. Matter of fact, some of the things that I did was with my wife and some other women saying, don't do it. Okay? I was not listening. And this was an upheaval in 2003 that affected a lot of our churches. But I actually said things that were not true about myself. I lied. I said awful things, like as if I did things that I didn't do. But there was this psychotic moment that I needed, somebody needed to own all the pain. So I was like, be mad at me. So people were. (laughs) And the next 95 days were just shocking. We had to keep our door locked. We had invasions. We had all sorts of, like, bizarre behavior. It was like a Stephen King novel. And then, at the end of May, I get a phone call from a minister. And he said, if you buy me breakfast, I'll change your life. I kind of needed a friend at that moment, you know. For just breakfast? That's sure, you know. So we met, and this man introduced me to the field that I do today. He introduced me to the literature and what was going on in my journey. What He was been watching the Chicago Church of Christ. He'd been watching our churches. He's a professional. He was, he's a head of a university today. Uh, Church of Christ minister. He changed my life. But I thought, when I ran across this story a few years later, I thought, I identify with a screw-up. But it's not the end of the story. And that's also true about people that you know that have messed up. It's not the end of their story. I don't believe in writing people off. We all need additional chances, not just a second chance, but more. And so in in the rest of this uh, chapter, you know, this is embarrassing to see what... Aaron does, you know. Joshua heard the noise, and they're all looking. There's a sound of war in the camp. No, it's the sound of singing. And they approached the camp, and this is verse 19. Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and his anger burned. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you, that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry with me, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to do evil. They said to me, make gods that will go out before us. As for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. So they put this jewelry together, and they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came a calf. I mean, he just lied. And Moses saw that the people were running wild, that Aaron had let them get out of control. And then there was a plague uh, that uh, took place, and it was on Aaron. It was... He was the reason. So then we come to really uh, how to view this after the fact. And and it's not very good, okay? I'm having trouble reading it. When you get 64, uh, I just got brand new glasses, but I have cataracts. So I'm squinting a little bit here. Okay. 
Yes, this is the passage here up, up above where we find out that the Lord was literally going to take care of Aaron, take him off the map, wipe him out. And it didn't happen. And the story's not over, though. He let him live. And more things happened. Uh, Aaron, two of his sons, well, he, he gets a new responsibility, Aaron does, with his four sons. God's kind of given him a place to be a minister, lead the Levites, and they would provide sacrifices for the community. And in some ways, it was good for Aaron because you're hearing about sin all the time. And he was such a sinner that he was now going to minister with that humility of his own sin with his family to provide sacrifices. And he was going to be really well taken care of. The whole family was. It was going to be food provisions and comfort with that role. But they would never own any possessions. They would never own land like the other tribe people uh, did. So uh, so that kind of is what's what's happening. And so he's put in charge of these things. Then two of his sons, Leviticus 10, uh, Aaron's sons Nahab and Abadu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and started an unauthorized fire. That was, apparently, evidently, that was a really big thing because they died because of it. So then, in Numbers chapter 12, we find that Miriam, Moses' and Aaron's sister, and Aaron were gossiping about Moses because Moses took a, a cush. Cushite wife, and they were critical of that. And then, through a series of discussions involving the Lord and Moses and these two individuals, uh, they got humbled. And Aaron, basically, in our words, he would he apologized. Says in verse eleven, "Please, my Lord, I ask you to not hold against us this sin we have so foolishly committed." So. Aaron's failures were not over. The blemishes in his family were continuing. His own choices. He was spiraling. Even after he was given another chance, he's, he's in a very, very difficult uh, time. And so it, we find also, also he's still given privileges. He's got two other sons that are still part of all this activity. And then he continued to make atonement for people. We see this throughout Leviticus. And so this is like a, a long period. You know, I talked about my 95 days. I think that this went on for months and months and months, maybe years. I don't know. I've tried to kind of cal- calculate it, but it, w- it was a ways. And so I don't know how that you feel if, if you have a period of time in your Christian life like that. I don't want to give you the impression that I just have one. Okay, I calculated that over 43 years, about every seven years, I get in a crisis. It's, a lot of times it's because of my mouth. And a lot of times I'm not ashamed of it. Sometimes I speak into situations that are unjust and then pay a price for it. Sometimes I don't do it very well. And so I have to pay that price for it, too. You have to clean up the messes that you make. And if anybody that's been in the ministry a long time, you know there's some really challenges that happen that most congregants don't know. People can get sabotaged. There can be power plays. Human nature is very dark. There's a dark side to all of us, but when it plays out in in power dynamics, it can get really scary and really weird. 
And so, and this is across all denominations. This isn't specific to any group, but you can get in some really funky places. I want to talk here about uh, Winston Churchill for just a moment. In 1917, he was in charge during World War I of a, uh, a particular ministry endeavor that was going to take place in Turkey. And about two or three days before this endeavor was going to take place, he realized it was no longer a good idea. It was a bad idea. So he tried to stop it from taking place. But it has his name all over it. It was his idea. So he you know, reported to his people over him and said, we should not do this now. And he got overruled. And as a result, 190,000 British young men lost their lives. And then what happened? He got blamed. He became the scapegoat. He became a derisive figure. He had been a hero as a, a daring journalist going back decades before that. But now his name is Mud. And after World War I, he gets involved in politics, and he just gets in some blunders, like really big. You know, like it was, there was some sort of a union clash, and he pulled out his pistol, and, you know... And then he got involved in economics around the time of the, the stock market crash. Made some really bad decisions there, too. And people wrote him off. He was, he was a goner. And he had what his biographers would say is, uh, was once called black dog depression. So what did Churchill do? He painted. He ended up going to Berlin in 1932, and he found out that somebody else was in that hotel, Adolf Hitler. So he ran into, uh, I think it was the barber of Hitler, and he said, could you tell your leader I'd like to meet with him? So he goes up and talks to Hitler and, and comes back down. He wants to know what you want to talk about. He says, tell him I want to talk to him about anti-Semitism. And then the meeting never happened, of course. You know, but over the next year, Churchill did some deep reflection. He even wrote a chapter in a book on Moses and how he delivered the people out of Egypt. And he believed in the miraculous aspect of the story. It's very clear in this chapter. I think what was happening is this dark period for Churchill helped him see darkness in the world for what it was. Darkness in people and the darkness of the times. And he was the first, loudest, and most courageous, outspoken person against what uh, Adolf Hitler was up to. And eventually that led to people realizing, okay, he's going to be the leader of the moment here. So I think our dark times can serve a purpose. Don't lose the opportunity that being in darkness gives you. It's like getting the pus out of your, your system, you know. It's like squeezing out those toxins. It's allowing Christ's light to shine in your places that you've not let him in before. And, and being able to be reflective to the place that you go, okay, this was of God. Even if it was my doing that got me here. <laughs> and so I just think we've got to allow ourselves to go through the process because of what emerges on the other side. And that's what I hope for all of you. Uh, and uh, this is not a, uh, a message for, that was written for this ministry. It's like timeless. 
And when we get to those places, we should remember this story. And it, it gets better right now, okay? Okay, so now we're going to go to the greater destinies. In, in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his son, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine in you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. And then this goes on and on. And there's, you know, lots of like uplifting moments where he's being used in a very noble, dignified way. But then there's this incident that takes place in Numbers chapter 16. Well, we get to see what happened to Aaron. This becomes his shining moment that he had crossed over, that he came out of this dearth into some fantastic moment. But it was a difficult time. So in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, Korah, son of Iskar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi and certain Reubenites, and a few others, became insolent. And rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came to Moses and said, you've gone too far, you and your brother. Well, what's important to understand here is these men were under Aaron. These were Levites. So there is a structure, a hierarchy. They bypassed Aaron, usurped him, went straight to Moses. And then Moses comes along in verse 7 and says, we're going to make this you're going to take some censors. We're going to invite the Lord down here, and he's going to pick who's gone too far. You've gone too far. That's what he says in verse 7. Then Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that God has prepared, separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near him? Verse 11, It is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? So what happened is these men all gathered together. They were, these 250 men were pretty certain that they were on the right side of history, and it didn't kind of turn out that way. And um, so in front of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared. The ground split apart, verse 31, swallowed them up. All the cries of the Israelites around them shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. Fire came out from this hole, and they were gone. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense on it, along with the burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly and make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord, the plague has started. So Moses did as, or Aaron did as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. And he stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. So... What we find out here is that here's a plague starter, Exodus 32, Aaron, who's become the plague stopper. And here I had a very reckless moment 21 years ago, and I go now professionally into reckless situations. And boy, have I seen them. We went into, my wife and I went into one uh, two years ago in a Lutheran uh, situation. Uh, and it was just shocking what had happened. And, but I'm like, oh, I know what to do. I've been through these things. And I remember standing in the room of about 100 people associated with this church and a school that were uh, blended together. 
And there were people mad in that room, mad at each other, and wanting me to take a side and all this. But I, I had such confidence. I took charge of that moment. And we got through it, and it was a victorious consultation. But had I not been through what I'd been through, I would not know what to do. You know, I probably would have picked a side, you know, and, and, and just the stupid things that we do in those situations. So, okay, what do we have here up on the screen? Okay, oh, yeah, this is an important thing. I want you to know that never again is this story mentioned, the, the Exodus 32 story, ever mentioned again in the rest of the Bible. The writer Samuel and the psalmist never mention it. If you talk to a Jewish person, Jews do not talk about the golden calf incident. Aaron is a hero. He's remembered for who he became, not who he once was. And, and if you even look at real closely at it, and, uh, in the New Testament, we have the, uh, the very words of the Hebrew writer. He, the high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he offer, has to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as the sins of the other people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. What a great transformation story. We have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and even the beginning is late in life. So this story is applicable for me again later. These stories show the heart of God. Now let's come back to the butterfly. Okay? We have a caterpillar who crawls, but the butterfly flies. There's practically a mindless creature that becomes a survival thinker. A consumer glutton becomes a sipper. He lives to spin the tomb as a caterpillar flies home without GPS. Caterpillar can't produce, a butterfly is reproductive. There's a real transformation there. Look at Aaron now. He once followed the crowd, then he stood against the bad. He was a weak leader, he became a confident leader. He was dishonest and learned to face reality. He made excuses and learned to take responsibility. He caused a tragedy and then stopped tragedies. And so, I don't know what most of you, struggles you've had in the past or present. It could be an addictive thing. It could be a relationship challenge. But guarantee that everybody I know has been a Christian a long time has those very gut-wrenching moments. And so the story of Aaron gives us hope that God could use those moments. I know, I have a friend, I'm not going to mention his name. He was really got involved in a lot of sexual sin. And he's now one of the most prominent leaders in the purity ministries in our churches. But I was there. I was his discipleship partner when it was all going bad. I had no idea what to do. I tried everything, you know. And God advised a lot of us corralled around this brother and his wife, and it was just not good. And then something happened. The something was God. Okay, so I, I hope that this story will provide some encouragement for you because those days are coming.
But the story's not over yet because he, Lord loves to do really cool things. He does. He likes to pick up broken people and, and, and make them whole again. So um, what I'd like to do is read a passage, two passages. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. And in preparation for communion, I would like to read this passage. A few chapters later, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that This all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we are alive who are also being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body.